Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that it hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and issues of dispute that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. Because decisions about the use of force and armed conflict are among the most important that any government can make, and an understanding of the relevant legal regimes is essential to assessing such decisions and holding governments accountable. In my view, the media and the public discourse in general do not sufficiently consider or analyze the legal aspects of such government action. And that may be, at least in part, due to an insufficient understanding of the legal regimes that govern decisions and conduct related to the use of force and armed conflict. So this podcast hopes to contribute to improving the public discourse on these issues. And so if you're finding the podcast enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and indeed, members of the media and other shapers of public discourse. Our guest today is Professor Tom Raus of Ghent University in Brussels, Belgium. He is, of course, extremely well known to anyone and everyone who does any work in the area of use ad bellum, as he's the author of the seminal book, Armed Attack and Article 51 of the UN Charter, and as well, editor of another outstanding and essential source on state practice relating to the use ad bellum regime, entitled The Use of Force in International Law, A Case-Based Approach. In addition, Tom is the co-editor-in-chief of the journal The Use of Force and International Law, and he is a member of the International Law Association Committee on the Use of Force. In this episode, we focus primarily on a recent blog post in Just Security by Tom and Felipe Rodriguez Silvester on the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and the exercise of self-defense to recover occupied territory. This blog post quickly became the subject of some debate in the blogosphere and on Twitter. Now, just to refresh everyone's recollection, a short, sharp war erupted at the end of September of this year between Azerbaijan and Armenia at the so-called line of contact bordering the Armenian-occupied territory of Nagorno-Karabakh within Azerbaijan. When the dust settled earlier this month, Azerbaijan, with Turkish support, had seized a significant swath of this territory, and several thousand had died on both sides. The dispute over the territory dates back, most recently, to the end of the Cold War, when Armenia seized this territory in a significant conflict that lasted several years, between 1988 and 1994, and which resulted in between 20 to 30,000 deaths and over a million people displaced. There had been an uneasy truce with periodic flare-ups since then, with Armenia propping up a self-proclaimed republic in the region which no one else recognized. So the question that Tom and Felipe explore in their blog post is whether Azerbaijan could be said to have been exercising a right of self-defense in using force to reclaim its territory in the Nagorno-Karabakh region in response to the armed attack that has been, in effect, ongoing since 1988, when Armenia first attacked and seized the territory. They say, quite emphatically, no, such a use of force cannot be justified as self-defense. But responding just days later, Dapo Akande, and Antonios Zanakopoulos of Oxford, in a blog post at Easel Talk, write emphatically that yes, it can. And this question of whether a state can use force and self-defense to recover territory that was occupied by a use of force years earlier is not only understudied, but is hugely significant and with considerable implications. But 
Before we dive into that analysis, Tom and I do also discuss his seminal book, Armed Attack and Article 51 of the Charter, both as a way of laying the foundation for our discussion of how self-defense applies to the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, dispute, but also to explore whether Tom's views have evolved at all on the many points of debate and controversy around different elements of the doctrine of self-defense since the publication of his book 10 years ago. I think that many listeners may be somewhat surprised by aspects of this part of the conversation. And finally, at the end, we talked just a little bit about Tom's recent work on economic sanctions and whether and how such sanctions relate to the collective security regime. As always, the links to Tom's biography, the materials under discussion, and his recommended readings are all posted on our website, jibjabpodcast.com. So with that, let's get to the conversation. Well, Tom Raus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. It's a great pleasure to be on, on the podcast. And I've uh, greatly enjoyed uh, listening to some of the prior episodes. It's uh, uh, good to see the podcast thriving. So uh, thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Yeah, and thanks for being here. Many of uh, my listeners have been clamoring to have you on. Uh, and so as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking guests to the podcast to share something about themselves that's uh, a little off the wall or even just something that most of your colleagues might not know about you. Uh, okay, that's a tricky question, of course, and I, I won't uh, be telling you anything spectacular, um, so I hope uh, not, to, not to let you down here, but uh, maybe just a few words on uh, how I ended up in academia, because that's also something that you were inquiring about. And in my case, academia was perhaps an uh, unexpected calling in the sense that as a student at, at uh, the law faculty in, in Ghent, which is the institution where I ultimately ended up, of course, uh, as a student, um, I must admit that I was perhaps more preoccupied with student life than actually with, with uh, going to classes in the <laughs> sense that we had a lively student association with its, own, with its own bookshop and proms, but also with its own faculty bar, oh. which was more or less a pub that was open, uh, well, maybe not 24-7, but uh, well, 24 out of 5. And <laughs> I must admit that for a number of years, that was where I spent most of my time. And well, for some months in a row, I... Uh, didn't see many classrooms from, from the inside. So uh, the, the thing is that when I now stand before the classroom and give my classes, I sometimes feel slightly uh, a bit of a hypocrite in the sense that I'm all, always <laughs> hope that my students will, will uh, show up, even if that wasn't always the, the case in, in my, my own uh, uh, personal experience. Uh, but then uh, maybe another anecdote, if you will. Um, after my uh, law studies, I did a PhD in, not in Ghent, but in Leuven, University of Leuven, uh, also in Belgium. And uh, the anecdote relates to my first, my very first efforts uh, to engage in academic writing. The, the first, very first piece that I wrote, I think it was something on uh, state-sponsored assassination, assassination of target killing. And I recall that when I had written the first draft of this piece, there was at the time a visiting professor in Leuven, uh, a, a Belgian scholar actually uh, working as a professor in, in, in the United States. And he had kindly agreed to um, give me some feedback to read the draft and, and to share some of, the, of his observations. So I was very um, well happy that he had offered to do so until the very moment when he shared his feedback in, an, uh, in, a, in a meeting in person and he, burned the piece completely down and <laughs> didn't believe much of it. And I recall that I was, uh, well, maybe close to crying, but then he completely destroyed the piece and uh, left me wondering whether I really had a, a future in academia. 
but of course, um, with the benefit of hindsight, I think I was fortunate to be given such a, maybe such a hard first treatment in the sense that it's a lesson one needs to well be critical critical for oneself and uh, well not to 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 put the bar sufficiently high. I think and uh, it's uh, something that has maybe. Uh, learned me that um, well, it's maybe better to hold off on on sending out a piece for review until you're really content with it, and uh, maybe that quality is more important than, than quantity. I I recall that uh, Jean Daspremont recently wrote about uh, what was it the wasteland of academic overproduction, and sometimes it, it's best to maybe publish one piece less and to to make it count. Although of course that is not to say that I always <laughs> succeed in that <laughs> effort. But again, this is something which, which has uh, stuck with me. And whenever I have a new uh, PhD research, I also tend to take a very close look at the very first draft that they submit. Because, uh, well, in the end, it's something, it's an investment that, uh, that generates quite some return, I would think. Interesting. And so can we take those two pieces together, like the, the feedback on the piece ended uh, your camping out at the bar every night? Is it? Oh, if you will, <laughs> sure, sure, if it makes sense to you. <laughs> Well, that's the version I want to use for my students in any event. Well, listen, so today we're going to discuss your recent blog post on the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and whether self-defense can be invoked to justify the recovery of occupied territory, which has started something of a debate in the blogosphere and raises really fascinating questions that are, as you say, somewhat understudied, but of considerable consequence. But before we dive into that, I think we might, it might be helpful for us to start by uh, talking a little bit about your magisterial book, Armed Attack and Article 51 of the Charter. First, because I think that my listeners would not forgive me for having you on the podcast and not talking about the book, which has become one of, if not the seminal uh, books on the subject, but also because I think it will help refresh memories on the basics of the doctrine of self-defense for the non-expert listeners, and so kind of lay a foundation for our discussion of the issues in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. So to begin with the book, which I have here, there are a number of aspects of the doctrine of self-defense that remain controversial and subject of considerable debate. And your book, which focuses on the triggering event of armed attack, manages to deal with a lot of these controversies and, and debates, if not uh, most of the controversial aspects, and does so by focusing on three aspects of armed attack. So the, the material or subject matter component, the temporal component, and the personal component or the status of the entities engaged in the armed attack. And so I thought maybe I might just have you explain a little bit of what those three components are, how they operate, and then we can sort of work from there into the doctrine and then on to the, uh, the current conflict. Okay, well, uh, first and foremost, thanks for the kind, kind words on the book. It's uh, getting a little old in the meantime, but uh, I'm happy that, uh, that you still find it useful. Uh, so, as you say, the book uh, really uh, examines the notion of armed attack as the trigger for the right of self-defense under Article 51 of the Uncharted and in the customary international law. And as you say, it tries to do so from a threefold perspective, looking at the material aspect, the temporal dimension, and the personal dimension. Um, and I thought it was a useful prism to approach the concepts. In, it's true that probably most of the debate has focused probably on, on the temporal dimension and on the personal dimension. And to me, the, it seemed logical to add a third component in the material dimension, which is basically the starting point. What types of acts do we um, perceive of as armed attacks? And 
what gravity is, for instance, required to consider certain acts as amounting to an armed attack triggering self-defense. And so that was, in my view, a, a useful approach. Um, I guess your main question is whether my thinking has evolved in terms of the, uh, the, the three components there. Um, That's definitely one of my questions, yes. <laughs> okay, well, I'm not sure which one you would like to tackle first, but we can maybe begin with the, the temporal dimension, if you will. So maybe why don't we start with the the material? Because I, I mean that's the the order in which you do it in the book, and as you say, there may be less of a controversy surrounding you know the scale and gravity issues. And yet, even then, uh, in the context of the so-called global war on terror and then uh, aspects of the unwilling or unable doctrine, there have been debates over whether, for example, a series of small attacks, no one of which would rise to the level of an armed attack is in the aggregate sufficient to constitute an armed attack. And so this came up again, even in the context of the uh, killing earlier this year of Qasem Soleimani by the United States. So what is your thinking on this? Uh, well, uh, it, let's start maybe with the, the case law of the International Court of Justice on, on that uh, specific topic. Eh? I think if you look at cases such as the Nicaragua judgment and the Armed Activities judgment, that there are implicitly at least some indications that the court acknowledges that attacks can be taken cumulatively in order to identify the existence of an armed attack. And I think to a certain extent that is a logical approach in the sense that you have in a short span of time, uh, several attacks that are interlinked, uh, which are in themselves small scale, but which uh, together make up a, a, a graver threat that, that impacts the analysis under Article 51. And specifically, the ICJ refers to the question whether certain attacks either individually or cumulatively could amount to an armed attack. And the mere fact that they at least consider the possibility of attacks being taken cumulatively uh, is something that indeed uh, points towards the exception, uh, maybe in certain exceptional circumstances, of the so-called accumulation of events doctrine, or the, the Nalstichtaktik, uh, uh, as it's uh, called in German. And in, in my opinion, there's also some support for this in state practice. And uh, if you look at the book, and there are some examples where indeed states emphasize the um, coexistence of multiple attacks. But of course, the key question is there, uh, how do you link these attacks together? Um, and that is, in my view, the, the critical point, and there must be a uh, linkage in terms of uh, who the attacks um, originate from. Uh, they should also be closely uh, linked in, in time. Um, so there must be something binding these attacks together in terms of the source, in terms of timing, in terms of the, under, uh, the, the, the objective of these attacks before we can, in my view, apply the so-called accumulation of events doctrine. Right. And I take it that you still are of the view and that you still think it is the dominant view that there is indeed a gap between the threshold for a use of force and armed attack. As you know, of course, the United States takes the position that there is no gap between a use of force and armed attack, that a use of force can constitute an armed attack. And the ICJ, of course, takes a different view. And in your book, you suggest that the ICJ's position is the dominant position. I, I take it that hasn't changed. Uh, well, it's... it's uh... <laughs> Again, a difficult question. I think that it still is the dominant position in legal doctrine. The strange thing, though, is that when you talk to scholars or people from or legal advisors for that matter, 
that ultimately that gap is maybe less broad than one might think, uh, or at times even fictitious, if you will. And, and what do I mean? Well, if you talk to scholars that are of the opinion that there is a gap between the two, yeah? uh, oftentimes that when they raise a certain gravity threshold for a use of force to qualify as an armed attack, uh, what often surprises me is that they will often come up with an alternative explanation as to why a state can respond to smaller uses of force. They will come up with uh, a, a broad interpretation of extraterritorial law enforcement and what have you, um, so as to cope with this problem of small-scale uses of force, which they would not qualify as an attack. Yeah? Interesting. And it's, it's something that I struggled with in the past, but if you would talk to scholars about specific incidents, specific cases, I think that the outcome would oftentimes be the same, even though there tends to be indeed this gap between uh, those that see a use of force and an armed attack as being equivalent and those that uh, see a big gap between the two notions. Uh, so that is maybe one, one uh, uh, observation. The other observation is, of course, that I also have a certain sympathy for, but this is a, a policy-oriented observation. I have some sympathy for the ICJ's approach in the sense that there is, of course, this um, desire to avoid uh, the large number of territorial disputes around the globe from spiraling out of control, from all too easily uh, leading to an invocation of self-defense. So there is this interest from a policy perspective to sort of raise the bar. Interesting. So we haven't even gotten to the controversial part yet, and yet. <laughs> Here we are. So let's talk about the temporal component, because as you say, this is an area with debates about imminence that have become extremely controversial in the last 10, 15 years. And, and so on this score, I'm really interested to hear whether your views have changed somewhat since the publication of your book 10 years ago. Okay, uh, well, the, the short answer, let's start with the short answer would be no, uh, I think not. But maybe as a preliminary point, I'm often surprised to see that some scholars that are very much opposed to the idea of, of self-defense against non-state actors and that are very reluctant to agree with the so-called enabler or unwilling doctrine, which we'll get to, I guess, in, 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 uh, in a bit, that many of these scholars have no problem in embracing preemptive or preventive self-defense. Indeed, if you start from the text of the charter, it is easier, in my view, to at least conceptually argue in favor of right of self-defense against attacks by non-state actors than to argue in favor of preemptive or pre preventive self-defense. Right. Right? Because, of course, the text of Article 51 refers, uh, without further qualification, to self-defense if an armed attack. Right. It doesn't say that it should be from a state that, or that uh, non-state attacks are excluded. It does say, however, that there needs to be an armed attack. Right. And so, at least on the base of the text, it's more difficult to justify or to uh, plead in favor of preventive self-defense. So that is one preliminary point, if I may. A second uh, preliminary point, and something which I have difficulties with, or which I find ultimately unconvincing, is this tendency of scholars that argue in favor of preemptive and preventive self-defense to rely on uh, pre-existing customs, so, so pre-charting. Right. And uh, you are, of course, familiar with the argument Essentially, the idea is that Article 51 
uh, refers to the inherent right of self-defense. And since self-defense is something inherent, it's not created by the charter, but it prefers something that already existed beforehand. And presumably that right of self-defense as it existed prior to 1945 was broad enough to also encompass preemptive and preventive self-defense. Right. right? Uh, that is an argument that I do not consider very convincing. And I also find it in a way superfluous. Why indeed would we uh, need to examine pre-charter custom when the charter has been in existence now since, what, 75 years, and there is plenty of state practice that has developed since 1945. Right. right? We have uh, plenty of material, unfortunately, to examine how states interpret and apply the right of self-defense. What is the added value of somehow, well, reverting back to pre-charter practice? Right. So I take it that when you're saying preventative, preemptive, preventative, we're talking about the Bush Doctrine and this sort of, sort of more speculative uh, threats in the future. But on the issue of anticipatory self-defense, as I recall in your, in your book, you were somewhat more nuanced in saying, well, there seems to be some movement in the direction of accepting some anticipatory self-defense where, where the armed attack is truly imminent. And you also, as I recall, introduced this idea of interceptive self-defense so that you're saying, well, there is almost surely a right of interceptive self-defense where the armed attack is in motion. You're less convinced that there's anticipatory self-defense and quite dismissive of the idea of preemptive slash preventative self-defense. And have you made any movement on the anticipatory or you're still of the view that the better and dominant view is that even anticipatory self-defense is not permissible, but interceptive is? Yeah, well, maybe first, the, the, there's also often a lot of conceptual confusion on the various terms that we yes, use, right? Yes, that's absolutely uh, right. Preemptive, preventive, anticipatory, and, and, and what have you. Yes. Um, and they're oftentimes used in different manners by different scholars. So that, that makes for a, a dialogue de sur in, in French, or it makes it complicates the discussion. Yes. Um, so the way I approach the terms is to uh, reserve the notion of preemptive self-defense for self-defense against imminent attacks and preventive for self-defense against non-imminent attacks. Ah, okay. And I would uh, use anticipatory self-defense as the overarching label. Oh, wow, okay. So that's different from your approach, and I'm not saying it's the better one, but I think that I chose this uh, format because it was also used in the um, UN report the, from 2004 and 2005 on, uh, from the higher level panel of fast challenges, and, and, and I'm not sure what the exact label was, but that's where I uh, took the, the concepts from. Um, but I think that I still stand with the analysis from the book in the sense that there is a clear development in terms of opinion juris, especially since 9-11. Uh, quite a number of countries have spoken out in favor of, let's say, preemptive self-defense uh, in cases of imminent threats. Right. So that number has increased. And also, if you look at legal doctrine, the support for preemptive self-defense has arguably increased. And I reckon this is to no small extent due to the Bush doctrine from 2002, which, um, and this is my personal appraisal, create a little bit of a Fata Morgana. <laughs> you, you will recall that the Bush doctrine from 2002 said that uh, self-defense in cases of imminent attacks, that this was something that had long been accepted. Right. There was no contestation about this. It was 
obvious in a way. Right. And then what the doctrine did was to go beyond this and to try to stretch self-defense to also include certain non-imminent threats. Right. And the reaction both from states and scholars was in a way twofold. And they pushed back very hard against the attempt to broaden self-defense to include non-imminent threats. But at the same time, they seem to uncritically accept this idea that, well, self-defense against imminent threat, threats was indeed generally agreed, that there was no dispute about this, which completely goes against all of the doctrine from the <laughs> decades. Right. So we still have become obliv oblivious to uh, the, uh, the long-standing controversy on self-defense against imminent threats to begin with. So the Bush doctrine somehow tricked states and scholars into <laughs> going along, in, in, in my view, with uh, the idea of self-defense against imminent uh, attacks. And so that is one interesting um, evolution. So the, the, the second issue is that I think the trend that has been taking place, especially since 9-11, it's something which we see specifically in terms of opinion juris. And there is strong support in middle doctrines in um, and diplomatic uh, statements, etc. But I'm still waiting to see the first convincing case of preemptive self-defense in state practice right. in an interstate context where the attacking state invokes preemptive self-defense and where such invocation is indeed agreed to by the remainder of the international community. And so I don't think that since the book came out, that there has been this breakthrough case, the new six-day war, if you will, that shows indeed that preemptive self-defense is now surely part of customary international law. Right. So that leads us, I think, to the unwilling or unable doctrine, because I think the other area in which imminence has been sort of distorted out of shape and the doctrine of anticipatory self-defense has really been applied aggressively is in the use of force against non-state actors, which of course brings us to the ratione personae or the personal or status uh, component of, of armed attack. So maybe first of all, you can just sort of briefly lay out your view on use of force against non-state actors in self-defense and the ability of non-state actors to launch armed attacks, uh, and then whether your thinking has changed at all. <laughs> I was hoping to dodge this question, but it seems it's... Uh... <laughs> One, so well, why not? Okay, so when I say that with respect to preemptive self-defense, I don't think that there's been this breakthrough in terms of actual state practice. Uh, the uh, situation is probably different when it comes to the uh, the ratione persona dimension and the use of self-defense against non-state actors. So when when the book came out, there was already some practice that suggested a broadening interpretation of the right of self-defense vis-a-vis non-state attacks. And there was also this trend in opinion juris and military doctrines and, and, and what have you that seemed to move towards a uh, expansion of Article 51 of the UN Charter. Right? And it's difficult uh, to ignore the fact that ever since, and there have been further examples in state practice, and most, most, most importantly, of course, there's been the, well, the advance of IS, of ISIS or Daesh, and the military operation against ISIS. So that is a uh, evolution in state practice that one cannot ignore, and which, well, we see that the 
large number of states have indeed invoked the right of self-defense to justify military action against ISIS in Syria, notwithstanding the absence of any form of consent on the part of the Assad regime. So there has been this invocation of self-defense by a number of countries, which you simply cannot fit into the conservative reading. Well, conservative is perhaps the wrong word, but the traditional understanding of self-defense by the ICJ in the Nicaragua case and uh, the armed activities case, right? Right. Uh, you cannot somehow explain this away, the invocation of self-defense and the acceptance thereof by third states by uh, suggesting that the conduct of ISIS was imputable to the Syrian regime, and that would be a completely perverse and absurd construction of the rules of state imputability, in my view. Right. So that does signal uh, that, um, to a certain extent, uh, attacks by non-state actors presumably can of themselves qualify as armed attacks in the sense of Article 51. So I would tend to think that that conclusion somehow imposes itself today. Of course, that leaves open the uh, very difficult question as to what that entails for the sovereign state from whose country a non-state actor is operating. Right. And how to piece that veil of sovereignty. Right. I mean, this gets to this question of, of as you, you put it, imputability or attribution, which I find is always the you know, one of the more controversial aspects of the unwilling or unable doctrine. And, and at the proponents of the unwilling or unable doctrine sort of brush off the idea that one needs to attribute the actions of the non-state actor to the, the territorial state and simply its unwillingness or inability to deal with the threat is sufficient to justify a use of force against the non-state actor within its territory. Nicaragua, of course, stands for a, a different proposition that there has to be substantial involvement of, of the state in the actions of the non-state actor in order to justify the use of force against the non-state actor within the territorial state. But if I heard you correctly just now, you're suggesting that the, the use of force in Syria by a number of the allied countries against ISIS uh, where the actions of ISIS really could not be attributed to Syria or the, the Assad regime may indeed have altered uh, the understanding of attribution. Is that right? Well, maybe maybe have, I haven't put it uh, sufficiently clear, but I, I don't think that they have altered the standard of imputability in relation to um, the use at Bell. I, I think that in, in the wake of 9-11 and the years following the 9-11 attacks, and scholars sought to explain um, the multi-action against Afghanistan and sought to, in a way, legalize that operation by suggesting that there was a lex specialis, a specific imputability threshold for use at bellum purposes. And I think that uh, effort is ultimately unconvincing and that it's gradually being abandoned, right? Um, with Al-Qaeda at the time, and there were clear links between uh, the Taliban regime and Al-Qaeda. So you could, at the time, still come up with a broader, like, specialist imputability threshold. Right. But in the case of ISIS, that attempt is, in my view, futile because it, it goes against uh, the, the very essence of imputability, which relates to conduct on, on, on behalf of a state. There's a great recent piece by, by Marko Milanovic on this idea of Lex specialis imputability thresholds in, in international law studies, where he 
very much argues against that idea that in specific subdomains of international law, you can have lex specialis imputability thresholds. Eh? Uh, the way in which you attribute conduct by an individual to a state normally should be the same, irrespective of the con context, irrespective of the uh, nature of the wrongful conduct at state. So I think conceptually that is a strange way of approaching uh, the matter, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think it, it, it does entirely. So in other words, the test for attribution for state responsibility is should should not be considered to be different from the test of attribution for purposes of USAID Bowen. I, I would think not. And the, the reason why scholars that either favor or accept the legality of self-defense against non-state actors try to rely on this uh, broad or like specialis um, idea of attributability is that they deem it necessary for any act of self-defense against the state from whose territory the non-state actor operates. They deem it necessary to somehow identify a wrongful act on the part of the territorial state. Right. Right? Uh, but I can sympathize with that view, but I do not think it is conceptually necessary in the sense that it seems to presuppose that there is this linear connection between Article 2.4 and Article 51, whereby, well, an armed attack necessarily presupposes a wrongful act on the part of another state. So scholars seem to think it necessary that in order for one state to use self-defense against the territory of another, they must identify a wrongful act on the part of that other state. Right. Right. But at the same time, uh, keep in mind that self-defense is a ground precluding wrongfulness, one of several such grounds precluding wrongfulness, like necessity, like distress. Yeah? And the idea of these grounds precluding wrongfulness is that they can justify committing a wrongful act vis-a-vis -vis another state without necessarily requiring there to be a prior wrongful act on the part of that other state. Hmm. It's just in the case of countermeasures that there needs to be a prior wrongful act by the other state before you can actually invoke the ground precluding wrongfulness. In self-defense, that is not something which is, it's not an inescapable requirement. Interesting. Well, I actually have uh, an episode scheduled for next month uh, with uh, Federica Pado, and we're going to dive right into this issue of the relationship between the law of state responsibility and circumstances precluding wrongfulness and self-defense. So this sets the stage perfectly. Okay. <laughs> but listen, we could spend all day talking about your uh, magnificent book and how your views have changed on things like the unwilling or unable doctrine. But we did want to get to Nagorno-Karabakh and the current debate that's hot off the press this week regarding that conflict. So let's pivot to that. And I think that um, obviously your argument on uh, this conflict relates very much to the temporal component of self-defense. So we've sort of set the stage for that. But you suggest in your recent blog post in Just Security that the question it raises, and this is that the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict itself raises, is that when part of a state's territory is occupied by another state for a prolonged duration, can the first state invoke the right of self-defense in using force to recover the occupied territory? Or, to put it differently, in the terms of armed attack, can the occupation be regarded as a continuing armed attack 
permitting recourse to self-defense long after the original occupation. And you suggest, you and your co-author suggest that the answer to this question is no. So, and as you know, uh, there's a piece on Eagle Talk, and I've forgotten the names of the authors off the top of my head, who agree with you, but then uh, Dapo Akande and Antonios Zanakopoulos disagree with you. And so why don't we dive right into your argument on this, and I will sort of pose some of the questions uh, or objections that uh, Dapo and Antonius uh, put forth in their usual talk piece, and we'll walk through that. Okay, well, that's, that's, uh, that's great. Um, the, the, the thing is that I actually, just as an anecdote, uh, a year ago or something, uh, we had a meeting in Brussels with, in the context of this uh, expert group on prolonged occupation, and the participants were asked to prepare short papers on specific questions. And one of the questions that I had to write a short paper on, a very brief, sort of a briefing note, uh, was specifically this uh, very issue. Uh, can you indeed use self-defense uh, to recover occupied territory? And the other author, the other uh, colleague that was asked to write a short briefing paper on the very same topic was uh, my, my dear friend and colleague, Olivier Corten also Belgian uh, scholar and, of course, uh, an expert on Isabel, whom you should probably invite. Yes, uh, definitely. He's on the list. <laughs> excellent. And the, the funny thing was that we both wrote this, this, this one pager, if you will, uh, arriving at completely opposite um, outcomes, <laughs> <laughs> which is always a good way to start an academic debate, of course. And the thing was when we were discussing the, uh, the two papers in the a working group, and it was clear that there was this division between uh, the, the two factions. Some some sided with Olivier's position, others with with my own, I guess. And so the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, um, in a way, provided a good occasion to uh, revert back to this question. And I was again surprised to see uh, how much uh, waves it has been causing and how much reactions uh, followed on social media. And uh, I was of course pleased to see uh, Dapo and Antonio. Uh, Respond. Right. Uh, but let's dive into the debate then. So, yeah, I think maybe an entry point would be the temporal uh, component, right? So, you, you make this, this argument that, you know, a textual interpretation of Article 51 suggests that the armed attack is limited to a specific, maybe not point, but a period in time, and that it cannot be said to have continued for the whole uh, duration of the occupation. Yeah. And, and DAPO, of course, takes issue with this. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the starting point in our analysis was that self-defense is something which you can exercise when you are the victim of an armed attack. And self-defense must be uh, is subject, the exercise of self-defense is subject to the requirements of proportionality and necessity. And necessity also entails immediacy. That is one of the criteria that often pops up in, in legal doctrine, but also in actual practice. And the idea underpinning our immediacy is that there is a reasonably short span in time between the actual on the tech and the exercise of self-defense. And what is reasonable, of course, is contextual, uh, depends on military preparations, the need to try uh, peaceful negotiations, to conduct investigations and what have you. And I would certainly agree that if there is a large-scale territorial in invasion, that there is a certain flexibility that must be uh, factored into the equation. Right? Right. So that is one uh, aspect 
And I would think that immediacy also implies in situations of territorial incursion, right? Even if the territorial incursion results in one country uh, having de facto control over part of another state's territory. Otherwise, that, that would, uh, in a way, also erode uh, the importance of the immediacy requirement. Right. Of course, you can only explain that if you accept that indeed the concept of an armed attack, that it is something which is temporarily limited, that in case of an invasion, for instance, that the actual attack is the military incursion and the hostilities that follow, but that when uh, the hostilities are over and there is this new territorial status quo that develops, that the mere continuation of an occupation no longer fits within the notion of an armed attack. So Dapo and Antonius uh, look at UN General Assembly Resolution 2626, uh, the Resolution on Friendly Relations, and they look at some of the language there, and they sort of turn your argument on its head to some extent and say that actually when there has been an invasion and there's a, not a peace treaty, but a ceasefire and there are terms in place, this eliminates the necessity of self-defense in the short term but that the armistice is temporary in nature and that that's what relieves the necessity of uh, self-defense, but that as this, so what is supposed to be a temporary armistice uh, starts to look permanent, this now increases the necessity of response and, and that therefore it's at that point that necessity actually kicks back in and the temporal component is still in place that it now that there is the immediacy of you have to respond in order to prevent this what was supposed to be temporary becoming permanent and crystallizing in your loss of territory mm -hmm. well so, so clearly adapo antonio start from the opposite position that the occupation itself is a continuing armed attack and that as long as the occupation uh, remains uh, in place that self-defense can be invoked in principle at any given point in time. Um, and they primarily rely on the definition of aggression, uh, which lists as one of the acts of aggression, invasion, and uh, occupation resulting therefom. Right. So that, that the main argument that they invoke, uh, and it's one that uh, one cannot easily gloss over, admittedly, although, of course, at the same time, uh, the value of the definition of aggression must be taken with a grain of salt. It defines acts of aggression. It does not directly define the notion of armed attack in the sense of Article 51 of UN Charter. So it has a certain interpretive value for understanding what is covered by self-defense, but it's not the final word. And as far as the argument uh, derives from the friendly relations is, uh, declaration is concerned, uh, maybe as, as a first response, well, one of the critiques that Daub and Antonios have vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the position that I set forth with a colleague with Felipe in our blog post was that we leave open the precise point at which the occupied state can no longer engage in military action to recover its lost territory. Right. This uncertainty or indeterminacy is uh, an argument that is used against our uh, position. <laughs> yes. The same uncertainty is present in, in, in their position. Right. Right. They say that self-defense uh, remains available at any given point in time, but they allow for an exception when there is an armistice that is put in place. Right. Yeah? But of course, that in their view does not prevent self-defense for an indefinite period of time, because 
when peaceful negotiations seem unsuccessful, then that would somehow reactivate the necessity to act in self-defense. But again, at the same question arises, at what point in time would you then accept that self-defense is again on the table? Right. And how do you determine that peaceful negotiations uh, in respect of Nagorno-Karabakh, in respect of the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, et cetera, et cetera, that these have become futile? Right. Yeah, so you both confront this problem of it's hard to draw or to figure out where the line is drawn, but I guess it still leaves open the question, which of you is right as to is self-defense continuing sometime after or reemerges, the right of self-defense reemerges once diplomatic relations or diplomatic solutions become futile? Or as you put it, no, self-defense becomes unavailable once a status quo starts to settle in. So I think the next uh, aspect of your argument is to sort of take a teleological and sort of purposive approach to that question and suggesting that it would be inconsistent with the purposes of Article 2.4 and the principle that one cannot settle territorial disputes with the use of force to take the position that you do. So maybe we can sort of grapple with that question. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not purely theological. There's a theological dimension to it, obviously. Right. There is also a, a legal principle that dictates that territorial disputes cannot be settled through the use of force and that they must be settled peacefully. So this is an important principle in my view and um, one which you do not, I think, want to completely erode. And that is what the opposite argument in my view would tend to do. Eh? Because of course, how do you draw the line between a territorial dispute that is covered by the duty to be settled peacefully or the prohibition on the non-use of force and other situations of what of unlawful occupation that would escape from the scope of that obligation. So Dapo and Antonius argue that the way to answer that question is to distinguish between territorial disputes in general and those territorial disputes that are the product of or, or the consequence of an occupation through armed attack. Mm -hmm. right? So they're sort of saying there's a subset of occupations that are the consequence of an armed attack, and it is only those, it's only that subset that gives rise to the right to self-defense. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting distinction, but if you uh, start thinking of how to put it into practice, it's extremely challenging, of course. Right. It seems to suggest that we have certain territorial disputes that appear out of thin air, <laughs> and then there are others that result from an unlawful use of force. But of course, if you look into history, there's so many disputes that actually result at one point in time or that are escalated by a use of force. Right. Think of the cases that have been dealt with by the ICJ of Cameroon, Nigeria. Think of Costa Rica, Nicaragua. Think of the type of Pravia. In all of these cases, there were accusations that the one state had made territorial incursions into a territory, establishing de facto control over territory that was ultimately found not to belong to them, and where the court ultimately found that it was the other side that held a valid title. Yeah. So I think that some authors are under the maybe mistaken impression that there is a small group of well, unlawful occupations that escape from the ordinary category of ter uh, territorial disputes. But I'm wondering whether that's not a little bit of a chimera. 
Right. So they also make this conceptual argument, which has some intuitive appeal when you first read it, which is something that goes something along the lines of, and I'm just paraphrasing here, that it's incoherent for a principle derived from Article 2.4 of the Charter. And, and here he's referring to the principle that there can be no use of force to resolve territorial disputes that could be said to negate the application of Article 51, which is itself an exception to Article 2.4 of the Charter. And I confess, when you read this paragraph of their blog post, it's sort of like, aha, yes, this seems intuitively right. Uh, what do you say to that? Yeah, well, it's an interesting point. Uh, but again, this relates back to how you understand the notion of arm attack, of course. Right. Acknowledge that there is a continuing arm attack, uh, that's a de facto occupation of a certain piece of land is and remains an arm attack, then yeah, that, that is one view. I think it's not the only possible view. And I think that the interpretation of self-defense is also informed by, for instance, the principle on the non-use of force to settle territorial disputes. I think you cannot neatly separate uh, the, the one from the other. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's a very complex uh, issue and reasonable people can disagree on, on, on the, uh, the outcome, of course. So I don't pretend that it's a, a straightforward um, conundrum. And uh, actually, the uh, Philippe, the co-author author and the blog post and myself, we will work on a, on a more elaborate paper that hope, hopefully will address some of the issues in greater depth. There's, of course, also the question of state practice, right? Right. How do states actually apply this? And that is something that I still want to delve into more deeply. But and just to give you at least one clue, if you look, for instance, now at the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, Azerbaijan did not claim self-defense to recover the lost territory. It argued that it was acting in self-defense in response to prior hostilities by Armenia. They suggested they, that they were engaged in a counter-offensive. Right. Whether that is correct or not, I leave that aside, but it's nonetheless striking that they did not simply invoke the idea that there was a continuing armed attack and that they could anyway use self-defense whenever they chose to do so. So in other words, they were responding to very recent attacks by Armenia. They were not responding to the 1990s occupation. Exactly. exactly. That was at least what they were implying, and right. leaving the, the accuracy of that statement. Right. So I guess, I mean, just to return back to the teleological or purposive point, and both you and Dapo seem to want to make the claim that your argument better furthers the principles of the United Nations Charter, right? Uh, and so you, if I understand your blog post correctly, at the end of the day, suggest that peaceful settlement of disputes and international peace and security trump the protection of territorial integrity and sovereignty of states. So, you know, your position is far more consistent, not only with the prohibition of on the use of force itself, but just the maintenance of international peace and security. And of course, Dapo and Antonio is actually sort of take the alternative view and say, no, 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 actually their position is more consistent with the principles of, of the UN Charter. So how do you respond or wh where do you come down in defending your, your position on this? Yeah, well, there's this inevitable clash between competing uh, interests, uh, both of which are protected by the UN Charter, of course. And it's right. a, a fair point indeed. Well, one, one argument that's sometimes made is that um, the position that, that, that I would uh, take, that it would somehow incite aggression or at least reward aggression right. 
I don't think it would incite aggression. I don't think that a state will somehow invade another state because they know that if they fail to respond in self-defense, they would no longer be permitted to do so. That's not the kind of legal thinking that a state would engage in when deciding to embark on a military operation. Right. At the same time, there's this indeed uh, frustration that the position would reward aggression, that it undermines territorial integrity, which is indeed one of the uh, key interests protected by the UN Charter. But of course, uh, there's this uh, simultaneously this interest in preserving international peace and stability and to prevent the scourge of war, as, as uh, the, the preamble of the Charter famously uh, states, uh, puts forth. And I think that is also a, a compelling counter argument especially if you look at the number of territorial disputes around the globe, there, there are many more than one might perhaps think of. Right. Um, so it's not this small group of unlawful occupations limited to Nagorno-Karabakh and the Golan Heights, and there are <laughs> so many territorial disputes where you could somehow identify a prior unlawful recourse of force that would, uh, according to some, leave open the door to self-defense um, at any given point in time. And so I think that this uh, is a position that creates a great risk in terms of uh, the maintenance of international peace and stability. Yeah? We live in an era where we face uh, sometimes great uncertainties. And when we talk about use of Belm, there's so many aspects that seem open to challenge and controversy at the same time. And the, the use of Belm has, to a certain extent, been quite an efficient framework. It has made the world much more stable. If you look at uh, the changes uh, on the map in the decades prior to 1945, I have this historical atlas, which my kids like to uh, go through. And every few years, you see how state borders change completely. Right. Ever since 1945, the world has become, uh, well, at least in terms of how we demarcate borders, the world has become a more stable place. Um, and I think that is partly credited to the prohibition on use of force. So you have these competing narratives, and it's right. certainly not something uh, for which, which there is an easy solution. There is maybe a third um, dimension that, that is relevant to consider, that is, of course, uh, the impact on human lives. Right. Right, and protection of human rights. And I, I know that you've been discussing with, with uh, Eliav, uh, Lieblich, and, and, and others, the sort of linkage between the use of bellum and human rights law in the sense that an unlawful use of force that it also uh, breaches the right to life in the sense right. that well so that this can also be brought into the equation if we indeed allow for all of these frozen conflicts to be reactivated on the basis of the idea of a continuing on attack right does that really advance human rights and the protection of individuals i would yeah, oh, very interesting. So we'll try to get Dapo uh, or Antonios or both of them on to respond. I mean, one of the questions I would have for them is whether they would make a distinction between the individual and the collective right of self-defense here. So, you know, is it open for a coalition now to try to drive Russia out of Crimea? Uh, or is it simply a right that's reserved to Crimea in their view? So that's, uh, you know, one more question. Or would I would I have uh, considered well would I would I have uh, had a different appreciation if Turkey had gone in uh, with a direct military intervention on the side of Azerbaijan? Right. Good question. I'm looking forward to their answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that uh, there's a longer uh, article to come on this, and so we'll look forward to that. And before I let you go, uh, you know, you've also been doing recent work on 
sanctions, which I was fascinated to see. You've written a few things on uh, economic sanctions, uh, both those authorized by the UN Security Council and those not. And certainly in the wake of the Trump administration, which has made uh, recourse to sanctions <laughs> more somewhat cavalierly than other uh, administrations in the past, it makes for a very important topic. But I'm curious how you see or whether you see a relationship between the resort to economic sanctions, whether authorized by UN Security Council or unilateral, and the collective security regime uh, of the United Nations, and indeed, you said Balam itself. Well, economic sanctions and targeted sanctions are certainly linked uh, to the collective security framework, maybe less so to the US and Bellum. I, I don't think that they uh, can be seen as um, uh, closely interrelated, but surely the uh, Security Council uh, uses sanctions as a tool uh, under its Chapter 7 authority to, for, for the maintenance of international peace and security. Uh, but it's the more interesting part are the unilateral sanctions that have become much more omnipresent in recent years. Right. And maybe the increased reliance on economic sanctions is in a way a result of the, well, the difficulty to uh, cooperate at the level of the Security Council and the fact that the Security Council has become less effective in dealing with some uh, conflicts, some uh, outstanding disputes or the increasing antagonism between the great powers. And so that may explain at least partly for the striking advance of unilateral sanctions. If whether these are truly a, to the benefit of collective security or not, that's a different matter altogether. If you look at uh, some of these sanctions being taken in recent years, as some are clearly inspired by security concerns. Right. Uh, and at times for understandable reasons, some seem to be inspired by uh, the need to protect uh, fundamental norms of international law, human rights law, or the, the, the provision of use of force, which we've been discussing. But at the same time, you see that uh, there are some sanctions that do not neatly fit into uh, the collective security paradigm or that do not plausibly seem to be justified by either security concerns or a desire to uphold international law. If you think uh, most strikingly of the Nord Stream 2 sanctions, that the United States has been adopting right. uh, in, in the past, what is it, the past year, the past year and a half. Well, this is quite far reaching and it's very difficult to explain to people in Europe and in Germany in particular that uh, somehow uh, the United States can take secondary sanctions against companies involved in the construction of a gas line between Russia and Germany. Right. How does that affect US security? Right. Is it not inspired by economic? By, by economic interests. So that is, I think, uh, something that uh, undermines the legitimacy of the sanctions edifice. Right. And, and at the other end of the spectrum, so I mean, you have these sanctions, as you say, the secondary sanctions that look like they're more likely motivated by economic interest than anything in the realm of uh, national or collective security. But at the other end of the spectrum, if you, I mean, we think back to the drafting of the charter, there was the debate over whether economic sanctions or intervention could constitute either a use of force or armed attack and so forth. And that was rejected. There was this clear line drawn between military force and economic sanctions. And yet 
the manner in which the United States in particular has been using sanctions against countries like Iran, it starts to look like it's eroding that distinction. I mean, if, if economic sanctions can be applied in a way that almost destroys an economy, it raises the question of whether one shouldn't start looking at sanctions as approaching or uh, approximating use of force in the ex to the extent that it has pretty severe consequences for the state and its population. Yeah, um, well, that, that's great. That's a great point, uh, Craig, and I, I very much sympathize with that position. I would maybe not say that uh, certain economic sanctions uh, approximate the use of force, but they would, uh, one, one could regard them as a form of intervention, right? Right. Is that they, there is this co coercive element to them. Right. At the same time, uh, um, if you look at the Nicaragua judgment by the ICJ, uh, they seem to very uh, lightly conclude that uh, an economic boycott, that it is not something that comes within the scope of non-intervention non principle. Right. And the ILC, I think, has also suggested something along the same lines. I think that this is a bit of a rash conclusion. Uh, as you say, uh, economic sanctions can have an enormous impact on uh, a state and its population. So to exclude that they are coercive in nature, as to some extent the ICJ and the ILC have done, uh, I'm not sure whether that was the, the wisest approach. And clearly, if you look at the position within the Global South, you may know that every year there are these resolutions that are right. passed by the General Assembly on unilateral coercive measures right. that are uh, in a way inspired by the, uh, by the idea that economic sanctions, they, they certainly are coercive in nature. Right. Uh, it's an interesting issue, one we may, maybe we'll have to have you back on to, to return to. But in any event, we'll leave that for another day. Um, before I let you go, though, I did want to ask you for recommendations on uh, reading for, for our listeners, three books, articles. Okay, uh, a few books then. Um, and the first one is one that you have already tackled in, uh, at length in the previous episode, and that would be Craig Forsyth's uh, Destroying the Caroline. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, well, not just because Craig is a, a great colleague uh, whom I've had the privilege of working with in, in recent years, uh, but it's such a fantastic book, of course, um, in the sense that it has everything, the, the law, the history, the politics, the drama. Right. And it's, it's really both a page turner and an eye-opener, eye I thought. Uh, uh, when I read it, I actually sent an email to Craig, whom I didn't know at the time, to congratulate him on such a... Uh, great work. It deals with one of these, um, well, one of the most famous presidents probably in, in the use of vellum, and um, one which we all think we know, right. you realize that you don't. Right. Exactly. Uh, so but you've been discussing this in, in the previous episode, and I will not, uh, well, I'll simply add my recommendation for those that haven't read it, that they should. So that was the first one. The second one, um, uh, maybe a bit more removed from the use of Bellum and the use of Bellow, at least a bit, uh, is a work entitled The Outlaw Ocean, hmm. a book that came out in 2019, The Outlaw Ocean, by uh, the, the author is Ian Urbina, who is or who was a reporter with the New, New York Times. Hmm. And the book, uh, so it was written by an investigative journalist who, for a number of years, did field research on, um, well, basically anything happening at sea from 
slavery, human trafficking, to illegal and lawful fishing, to um, environmental action against whaling vessels, piracy, and what have you. Wow. The, for, for a number of years, uh, the, the uh, author spent uh, numerous months on uh, fishing vessels in the South China Sea or on the <laughs> Sea Shepherd uh, pursuing um, uh, another vessel engaged in illegal and lawful fishing. And it is really an eye-opener for anyone with uh, even the remotest interest in the law of the sea, in that it illustrates the challenges of trying to regulate what happens on the oceans and what a vast lawless domain it may well be in the end. Oh, wow, interesting. Yeah, so I would warmly recommend it. Will do. And then maybe a third and last uh, recommendation, since you asked for three. Yeah. Am I allowed to make a recommendation of a book that I still need to read myself? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, then I would opt for, well, there's, there's so many uh, good books around, so, uh, but I would uh, suggest the uh, latest monograph by Erica de Wetz on military assistance on requests. Oh, yes. That came out earlier this year uh, with Oxford University Press. So not just because Erica is the force of nature. <laughs> She's certainly uh, one that I would recommend uh, for, for the podcast, but also because of the importance of the topic. And this is a, well, of course, a, a, one of these uh, key use at bellum controversies, the extent to which states can provide military assistance on request, uh, uh, to what extent a regime can actually call upon the military support from a third state, whether it would be allowed to do so in situations of armed conflict. And the importance is illustrated by the increased reliance on the doctrine in recent years by Saudi Arabia, by uh, Russia, by um, there's so many instances where the doctrine has been invoked, and oftentimes in quite problematic context. And so uh, I think uh, Erica's treatise, which uh, I must admit I still need to read, but <laughs> some of her work. Uh, on the topic uh, is probably the most comprehensive analysis of recent state practice. And it will be a vital resource probably for uh, the current International Association's Committee on the Use of Force, which is indeed dealing specifically with the question of intervention by implication. And so uh, there is a, a committee that has recently started work under the chairmanship of uh, the great class Kress. And I think her book is really, for those interested in the topic, uh, Listen, Tom, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Uh, I do look forward to the, the, the longer paper on the Nagorno-Karabakh issue uh, and the, the continuation of the debate over how we should consider the recovery of occupied territory. But thank you. And we'll have to have you back on to talk about sanctions sometime. Okay, well, thank you. It's, uh, I've been enjoying the conversation. I hope uh, I've not uh, talked too much nonsense, but uh, it's pleasure. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Tom. That was great. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. And note that there is a page with all the reading recommendations to date, which is growing into an impressive list of coming holiday reading. Again, if you have any comments, feedback, suggestions, critiques, please do send me an email. My contact info is also on the website. And if you're enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at, at JibJabPodcast for updates on the coming episodes. 
This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next episode, stay safe.